Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. My guest today on The Art of Range is Paul Stars. Following my interviews with Richard Knight, I was reading Ranching West of the 100th Meridian because I had ordered it earlier, but it did not arrive in time for me to pull from it directly in talking with Dr. Knight. But the book is a collection of chapters that were written by others uh, other than Richard Knight. The first chapter is titled An Old Way of Life in the New West, written by Paul Stars. I enjoyed the content, but I enjoyed the writing more. Unfortunately, this is unusual in the world of biological sciences, even in the, some of the applied sciences like rangeland ecology. So I decided to look Paul up and discovered that he was the husband of Lynn Hunsinger, another of my recent favorite range people. Uh, Paul, welcome to the show. Why, thank you so much, Tip. It's great to be here. I'm finding that I particularly enjoy reading geographers. Uh, maybe that's maybe I just enjoy reading geographers who are good writers. Um, but I have especially enjoyed for years reading Nathan Sayre because he's one that intersects quite a bit with the world of rangeland ecology. Uh, if if you disagree about Nathan's writing quality, maybe we could have that out on a different top a different day. But uh, how did you end up becoming a geographer? Well, this is an interesting question, Tip, and it's a bit of a saga. Um, I went to high school just outside of Washington, D.C., in McLean, Virginia. And when I was nearing the point of graduation from high school, I began investigating places that might be appropriate college venues or university venues. And so I applied to several places. one of which was a tiny little school on in easternmost California, uh, about two miles from the Nevada border uh, in a completely isolated valley, a little place called Deep Springs College. And Deep Springs College, uh, which is just completed its first hundred years. And as part of that celebration and uh, part of the sort of social justice and equality movement went from being all male, which it was for its first hundred years, to becoming co-educational. And Deep Springs is actually on a working cattle ranch and with about 3,000 deeded acres. But one of the things that intrigued me when I applied to go to Deep Springs is that Deep Springs is also <laughs> has a very substantial uh, BLM allotment, actually several of them at this point. And they also graze livestock, cattle in this case, up to 12,000 feet in the White Mountains on the California-Nevada border. And I was, uh, all the students that go to Deep Springs work, it's not to pay back our full tuition room and board scholarships. It's actually because taking reasonably bright young people bring them out to an isolated environment um, and basically having them work a minimum of 20 hours a week 
is quite a source of education. And the founder of the college back in 1917 believed that there were plenty of bright people in the world, but not very many people who could be both bright and resourceful, hardworking, able to deal with the sorts of disasters or at least inconveniences that are part of ranch life was a really important part of their upbringing. And so Mm -hmm. I actually was a ranch hand at Deep Springs College for two years. And then I worked for another four years after that during summers when I was finishing up my undergraduate education, working for um, ranches in Western Nevada. And so this was my education. I went off to UC San Diego, finished my undergraduate degree, and As I was getting toward finishing up, I went to my two um, favorite professors there and I said, gentlemen, do you have any ideas for what I could do or where I could go? And they had, although one was from history and the other was from English, exactly the same response. And their response was, you know, Paul, somebody with your kinds of interests should look into going into geography and it should be at UC Berkeley. And I, I thought, Oh my goodness. I thought these guys liked me because <laughs> in my world, when I went to high school and this is no knock on basketball coaches, the person that taught the geography classes at McLean high school was the only person that taught a geography course because they figured that was the only thing he could handle without boogering it up. I thought, well, that's good advice. Um, Lynn and I spent six months living in Taiwan, um, working on China. She was working on her Chinese and I was trying to get started with Chinese. And then I went off to graduate school, as did she at UC Berkeley in geography. Um, I was geography. She was uh, range management and resources. So, you know, this is a a long way of getting to a kind of exotic background. I kept ranching, kept working as a ranch hand, actually, even when I was in graduate school and enjoyed it very much. And this convinced me that there were some really interesting things about ranching and ranchers that I should continue to follow up on. I think that begs the next question, which is, what is geography? I would guess that most people have the idea that geography is that subject taught by that guy at the high school who can't do anything yeah, else. That's it's got to be a fear. Which is not exactly uh, complementary to geography. But maybe, for example, how is anthropology different from geography? Well, it's a good question. You know, um, Nathan Sayer, who is a good friend of mine, and um, actually somebody that who, whose book I book manuscript I recommended for publication at the University of Arizona Press, but his first book, um, Species of Capital. But, um, you know, Nathan's a cultural anthropologist. I'm a cultural historical geographer, very much interested in how things evolve. The difference is that anthropologists, and this is a generalization, but most anthropologists, certainly most cultural anthropologists, are very much tied into um, people and family structure and um, life ways as their sort of basic source and trade. Geographers, um, many of them, look at a very broadly conceived 
phenomenon that that we refer to and people in general refer to as landscape. And so we are landscape watchers, landscape observers, and we go out into the landscape and deal with trying to figure out what produced the look and the lay of the land. Um, and that's actually a, a, a pretty intriguing process that takes in, of course, the built environment. It takes in houses. It takes in ranch barns. It takes in outhouses. It takes in sewage systems. It takes in food paths and food ways. Uh, and geographers work on all these and many other things, including social justice, environmental racism, um, economic geography and its many facets, urban and agricultural geography. And so it's an incredibly broad field. Um, in essence, people oftentimes confuse geographers with geologists also, and they go, oh, so you study rocks. And I point out to them <laughs> gently um, that, well, indeed, ge some geographers do study rocks and landforms, but the best geographers, in my view, um, are, are much more interested in trying to understand the phenomena that are essentially above the land. And if geologists get things that are subsurface, geographers get everything that is above the ground. It's all fair game for us. And the, probably the crucial thing that goes along with geography, particularly right now, as we approach the second decade of the 21st century, is that we're particularly interested in phenomena that can be mapped. And so um, livestock driveways, um, we look at uh, roads and transportation systems, we look at uh, traditional paths, we look at movement, we look at immigration, and all these things are eminently geographical, but they can also be put down on paper in a map. And that's one of the ways in which we begin to understand the world around us. And the really hot topic now for geographers, particularly at the undergraduate and graduate school level, is uh, a phenomenon that your audience probably knows about, um, which is geographic information systems or GI science, as it's sometimes called, which takes mm -hmm. all this mapping procedure and basically turns it around and uses computers to um, bring up the data sets, to bring up the coverages, and allows us to look at and analyze and compare um, and get actually sometimes quantitative, sometimes qualitative information about the places that we're looking at. Yeah, that sounds to me like connecting... Oh, I don't know. It seems like the, the hard sciences are trying to deal with everything in the abstract and remove people from the equation. It sounds like geography is connecting the abstract to the specific. And in the beginning of your, in the beginning of your essay, region, reveries and reverence, uh, you quote, uh, you quote Geertz. I really like the quote <laughs> for it is still the case that no one lives in the world in general, everybody, even the exile, the drifting, the diasporic or the perpetually moving lives in some confined and limited stretch of it, the world around here, you know, everybody lives somewhere, not somewhere in general, but we're always trying to generalize. Is that a, 
accurate characterization of what geography is trying to do in part. I mean, I think even maps do that, to connect the general to the specific, to abstract the specific. Oh, absolutely. There's no, no doubt about it. And, um, and what geographers oftentimes to do, what some geographers turn the funnel around and look through the wide end and try to peer what's coming out the other end. And in this case, literally so, because several of my colleagues at the University of Nevada in Reno, where I teach, um, actually um, spend a lot of time looking through binocular microscopes at, um, at pollen, for example. And so they're literally looking at the really super detailed. Other geographers are more interested in the sort of broader picture at what social scientists would call the normative, uh, which is to say just what many people do. Uh, and so dealing with those sorts of contrasts is um, and, and figuring out where our place is in this geographical universe is a really important part of the story. And I might also add that that whereas I, for example, when I'm working with my PhD or my master's students, remind them that they don't want to get an incredibly broad topic uh, because it'll take them forever to try to get their arms and brains around it. Uh, it's, mm -hmm. it's it, as they evolve as geographers uh, and as scientists, they'll discover that they can take in more and more and more and tell a broader story about people in a landscape. One question, maybe I'll, I'll let you be a critic of, of rangeland science here. I, I feel like uh, that that there has been an effort to distance rangeland science from the people of the range, uh, namely ranchers, but maybe even maybe even native peoples that lived in landscapes that were mostly rangelands. And I think the idea was to escape the accusation that rangeland scientists were just a pawn of the livestock industry and to try to prove range science as a pure hard science. And I think the results of that are maybe not all good. It seems like there's a movement toward uh, bringing people back into the equation, I think for a variety of reasons. One is, is I think, um, a, an increasing respect for some of the qualitative sciences. Mm -hmm. I heard a talk by Maria Jimenez Fernandez last year at the SRM, and she was uh, she was criticizing uh, quantitative researchers for uh, f for not identifying their personal biases when they evaluate research. And her point was that in qualitative research, you're obligated. To, uh, to, to document your own bias because everything that you say downstream from that is affected by it. And she was making the case that the same is true in quantitative research, but there's no such standard of practice in quantitative research. We tend to think that we're you know, robots interpreting hard, objectively verifiable data that looks no different no matter which angle you look at it from. But I think that's not the case. That's a long way around to asking the question, uh, do you think that there's a, a, a positive trend? I realize that's a, a value-laden statement, but do you think that there's an, a, a move back toward bringing people back into rangeland science, recognizing that all of that is a, a single whole? Yeah. You know what? That is... 
<laughs> it's an amazingly great opening. Um, and, and Nathan Sayer is one of the people that's done a lovely job of going back and looking at rangeland history and the history of range science or range management. But I just remind, well, you, you know this already, Tip, but um, a lot of people have forgotten, even people who are actively working in rangeland or resource management or range cons or, or whatever, um, that back in, I think it was 1906, but I could be off by a year or two, um, the U.S. Forest Service published the Green Book, and which was for, for people who were working out on the range, um, particularly Forest Service employees, was kind of the Bible. And it's possible, and one of the things that was really emphasized there is that for people who were range management or range conservation people, the expectation was that they would go to a community, they would live in that community, they would become a part of that community. I know it sounds like heresy in the 21st <laughs> century, but they were supposed to basically become part of local society and their responsibility was to make sure that not only was the range resource maintained in good condition or brought up to good condition they were also very much encouraged to make sure that the local community was in good shape and so this kind of adversarial relationship if that isn't an unkind word but uh this adversarial relationship that exists sometimes now between range managers uh, at the BLM or Forest Service level and the uh, permittees um, is really a relatively modern phenomenon. And it's hard to date it exactly, but I'd say a lot of the antipathy really got going in the 30s and 40s. There was a kind of an anti-range movement, uh, an argument that ranchers who were at some point running a bit roughshod over some of the Western range um, were outstepping their boundaries. But um, by the time you get to the 1970s with, the, with FLIPMA, the Forage and Land Management, Forest and Land Management Policy Act, People were at loggerheads. It was it was range cons versus permittees, and that became a pretty difficult state of affairs. And that traditional um, relationship, the the sort of amicable relationship between the range management officers and the local communities, had pretty much disappeared. And lest you think I'm just making this up, you can go back and read, for example. The um, first four novels written by Ivan Doig, uh, who grew up um, in northern Montana, and his father was actually a range con. And a lot of the stories in um, his books are very much about this rancher um, community um, federal resource officer relationship and how that worked and how that played out. It's, it's an important part of Western life. Now, you know, that for all intents and purposes disappeared somewhere between 80 and 100 years ago, the amicable relationship. But that's where 
range management as a field really got going. And then the science came in and an awful lot of professors of range or resource management or practitioners, um, people who were range cons, for example, um, have sort of tiptoed around that sometimes contentious relationship over the last 80 or 100 years. In one of your essays, you say that geography will die if geographers don't start writing for an able and willing audience. Uh, what exactly did you mean there? Is that an exhortation to geographers or a complaint about the audience? It's an exhortation of, to geographers to, 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 okay. to get off the stick and get going because um, there are plenty of geographers who write deeply learned and fundamentally indigestible uh, scientific pieces. Um, and of course, the same thing exists in uh, rangeland science is, you know, there's a world, and not to speak ill of range managers, but there's a, a range scientists anyway. But as, as you know, Tip, there's a world of range science publications that basically say, yes, if you add 30 pounds per acre of nitrogen phosphate fertilizer, you can increase the growth rate of grass on your pasture by 15%. And, um, you know, and, and you read this and you just go, mm -hmm. you know, this is what my dear sister uh, once introduced me to. She goes, that's, that's a BGO. And I'm like, Claire, what, what does BGO mean? <laughs> and she goes, a blinding glimpse of the obvious. And so this is one of the tricks is that I, I, I would be much heartened if my geographical colleagues and actually some of my range management colleagues. And of course, Maria Fernandez Jimenez is one of the really accomplished ones. And I dare say my, my, my good wife is also. Um, they are both range scientists who can also write a really accomplished narrative. And that really makes a difference. And, um, you know, geographers do eventually, some of them, some of us, eventually get tired of writing learned pieces that are read by our mothers, if they're still with us, and about 11 other people. Um, yeah. And you just sort of go, oh, for crying out loud. Um, how about something that is a little bit more inclusive, a little bit more generous, finds a larger audience. Some of the best geographers, Tip, this is a slightly embarrassing, but some of the best geographers are in fact journalists or journalist, mm -hmm. journalist scientists, if I may use that term. Uh, I, I think I have a certain bias, which is that my family, I think, has has subscribed this goes all the way back to my late parents i think they subscribed to the new yorker from about 1945 onward and of course i've maintained mm -hmm. a subscription as well but if you read the essays by people like jill lapore at harvard or um oh well there's there's dozens of incredibly smart people who are writing about hazards about climate change about um, hazards, about seismic issues, about all these sorts of things. And of course, 
I don't know exactly what the what the subscription base of the New Yorker is now, but for a long time it was two or three million copies were going out, and so that's a really different world. And I do actually know a few geographers who have written written for that kind of audience. And mm-hmm. as I approach retirement and uh, in a foreseeable window, you know, that's one of the things that I'd really like to do is write for a more uh, popular audience and see if I can change a few minds along the way. I'm probably not going to change the minds of my colleagues who work on livestock ranching and property and land ownership and, uh, and geography. But um, for the general public, there's a lot of difference that we can make. And I hope we do. I do think that's how big ideas get into the mainstream, i.e. the New Yorker, rather than the yearbook of the Association of Pacific Coast Geographers. You got it. And I, I think that I think that journalism only recently has a bad name. That uh, historically <laughs> was a more honored profession. I would also argue, though, that the the challenge of of writing to an audience has has gotten more difficult because of um, because of the audience. There's a I read a couple of years ago the book by Neil Postman, um, "Amusing Ourselves to Death," uh-huh. and he says, "I'm quoting now: the, the reader must come armed in a serious state of intellectual readiness. This is not easy because he comes to the text alone. In reading." One's responses are isolated, one's intellect thrown back on its own resources. To be confronted by the cold abstractions of printed sentences is to look upon language bare without the assistance of either beauty or community. Thus, reading is by its nature a serious business. It is also, of course, an essentially rational activity. But to engage the written word means to follow a line of thought which requires considerable powers of classifying, inference-making, and reasoning. It means to uncover lies, confusions, and overgeneralizations, to detect abuses of logic and common sense. It also means to weigh ideas, to compare and contrast assertions, to connect one generalization to another. To accomplish this, one must achieve a certain distance from the words themselves, which is in fact encouraged by the isolated and impersonal text. This is why a good reader does not cheer an apt sentence or pause to applaud even an inspired paragraph. Analytic thought is too busy for that and too detached. The modern idea of testing a reader's comprehension, as distinct from something else a reader may be doing, would have seemed an absurdity in 1790 or 1830 or 1860. What else was reading but comprehension? I think there's – I read some research not too long ago in doing uh, some literature review on an article that I was working on about podcasting as an educational meeting, medium and, and more on conversation as an educational medium. And um, the, the research was documenting the change in reading behavior over time among you know top-tier scientists, whereas, say, 25 years ago, they would have read – linearly and and followed read all of the text down through the better part of an article the research was showing that uh, the reading behavior of these researchers was jumping over the page with their eyes scanning for words or phrases that they thought were relevant to what they were looking for 
and they they weren't actually yeah they were skimming rather than you know submitting themselves to the text and essentially putting themselves in the hands of the author and following it where it went <laughs> yeah. so i think the the writing has become more difficult because of readers as well i think that's part of it i think our it, it's often commented that we grow impatient and that we um get to the point where people want to rush through various sorts of things and get to get to the meat of the matter. I, my counter to that would be that I think it's incredibly important for um, people to really look at um, to, to, to look at and enjoy and um, get the flavor not just of words but also of, the field of landscapes of what's out there. And, uh, and if you had, you had the uh, Neil Postman quotation, if I can give you a, a quick one uh, as well, I'll, uh, I'd like to do that. It's, it's very short. Um, this actually is from um, Don Quixote, believe it or not. And um, that sort of that, that absolute classic uh, that, Almost everybody has heard of and relatively few, few people have read. <laughs> but um, I'll give you the Spanish version first and then I'll give you the English version because they're both incredibly elegant and quite wonderful. And it's the same text, but just in two different languages. So the Spanish version goes, Eso creo yo muy bien, dijo el cura, que ya yo sé de experiencia que los montes crían letrados y las cabañas de los pastores encierran filósofos. A lo menos, señor, replied el cabrero, replicó el cabrero, acogen hombres escarmentados, which translates as, That I can well believe, said the village priest, for I know now from experience that the backwoods give rise to the eloquent, and the herdsman's hovel, shelters philosophers. At the very least, sir, retorted the goat herd, they sheltered those chastened by life. And that whole phrase, chastened by life, mm -hmm. is very much about what livestock ranching, whether it's cattle, sheep, goats, horses, alpacas, vicuñas, yaks, um, that for me is one of the sort of object lessons that livestock ranching can bring back to us is an awareness of how people fit into the landscape. And that is um, really, a, as I said earlier, the key concept of geography is um, how people create lifeways in different environments. And, and I guess I would also disagree with you. I think some of us read and look for wonderful quotations all the time. And I have I, I, the quote from Don Quixote actually came from um, uh, something I, uh, well, I, I, from a file that I keep that's simply titled quotables. And so uh, I, when I write things, oftentimes we'll use epigraphs at the beginning of a paragraph or even several pages, because it seems to me that they capture an essence that I then want to reflect on. And I think that's one of the things that we as scholars can do. That's an ancient practice. Introduce other people to 
um, the ideas to diverse sources and maybe get them back to reading and reading a little bit more carefully and a little bit harder than they have if they're just skimming an article um, in the New York Times or in the Wall Street Journal or in the Denver Post, right. wherever. Well, and I would, yeah, I would agree with you in in your criticism of of bad readers. I would, I guess, I would argue that readers would probably perform better if they encountered something worth reading. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I think I may have mentioned to you in our phone call that I picked up the yearbook of agriculture uh, from 1938. It's a big book titled Soils and Men, and it's meant to be just a, a report, but the report is written in such a way that it's readable. And once you start into it, the text grabs your attention and hangs on to you and causes you to, to continue to continue with it. My initial thought when you were talking about being at Deep Springs College and the, the kind of uh, work and immersion in the landscape, my immediate thought was that would stimulate uh, what I call higher order thinking, where your brain is free to, to work on something for a period of time. And those of us, at least today, who work in, you know, who, who what are what would be called a knowledge worker, somebody mm -hmm. who's doing a desk job, don't have much time to do that. And personally, I've found that the only times that I write anything worthwhile is when I've removed myself from that constant stream of information and allowed my brain to take a string of thought and work on it for a while. In fact, if I need to write anything important, I almost always do it longhand away from a computer. Maybe this is my own weakness, but that's the only way that I can, I can stay in it. You know, I'm a chronic reviser. It's just, it, Tip, it's one of those things that I, I try to write it and the paragraphs get moved around or the sentences get moved around or, um, I just published a piece, uh, my presidential address to the Association of Pacific Coast Geographers. And my goodness, I think I went back and forth with the editor with about 15 corrections, even after we'd gotten to the uh, typeset stage. And I'm sure I just drove the, the compositor, the production person, almost completely crazy. But you know what? That's one of the things that we do. And we try to dive in and find the right words and the right images. And that's what makes, in my view, writing successful and um, gets the story across. And, um, and geography, like range management, like anthropology, uh, is very much about generating stories. Historians have had a great upper hand on this for 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 decades, um, maybe even centuries, because they basically look at their audience or they look at their subjects and think of them as as sources of stories. Geographers are still struggling to get there, but I think many many people have, and um, they figure out how to get their narrative across in such a way that it demonstrates relevance. It demonstrates. Um, how they do things and why they do them that way, all of which is important, an important part of the process. And I think there's probably some things that we can, I don't know, probably, there are things that we can learn from those people who don't have a long background in academic training and scientific knowledge, but who have lived 
you know, connected to the land oh, absolutely. for a long There's period of time. Absolutely no question about that. And yeah, it's, it's um, you know, I, I wrote about this tip a, a little bit in a piece from almost 20 years ago, which is the, the piece that you mentioned right at the right at the top, um, old way of life in the new West. And, um, would you like me to read a little bit of that? I think it actually is pretty engaging. Please do. So this is a clip about a couple paragraphs long from an old, from ranching West of the hundredth meridian, uh, and the title of the chapter, which is the one that opens everything up is ranching an old way of life in the new West. So it goes. Ranch fits and starts. Ranching in the United States is a singular mix of the resolutely practical and time-honored, as well as features that are dreamlike and elusive. Feats of imagery and the fantastic and the romantic. The product is a distinctive landscape, extensive in its territory yet often subtle, or at least remote in its humanized features. The ranching landscape is a subject of almost infinite complexity, about which much has already been written. But the essence of 21st century ranching, and the cowboy and the ranch economy and the landscape of the ranch, is complicated adaptation. And that is nothing new. It's been so for a century and a half, maybe even 500 years, since cattle and the elements of ranching were brought to the New World in Columbus's second expedition in 1493. That's a long tradition in which change is about the only expected and standard rule, with challenge um, a close second to change as agent and force. It's odd that a lifeway whose supporters are so given to espousing tradition is, in fact, completely dependent on packing before countervailing political, ecological, and economic winds. Ranchers tend pretty much of necessity to be ultimate pragmatists. It is their supporters who wear the big hats, never having choused a cow, and it is often rancher wannabes who prove notoriously inflexible, hidebound, and doctrinaire. Because ranching requires access to so much land, and because its incomes are at best small, ranching has rarely had a strong built-in economic constituency in places of power. Instead, ranchers have, through the years, had to make cultural converts and they continue having to do so with surprising and ongoing success. And it goes on from there to discuss the history of ranching, but I think that's enough. I don't want to bore people with long uh, recited uh, items. But, um, you know, I think that gets to this point, which is something that I've been writing about for 35 or 40 years, which is that livestock ranchers in particularly west of the 100th meridian and really now um, from the Rockies to the west um, have had to adapt. And that is really their great skill set is being willing to change with the times. They do believe in tradition. They do, do believe in what they're doing. They do believe in um, a variety of everything from the kinds of saddles that they wear to the shaps that they doff to, um, to, you know, everything that goes along with that. But lo and behold, um, 
ultimately something comes around, the economy goes down. Um, you know, if she is the rancher and he goes into town to work or the other way around, um, they have to adapt to the times and find a way to keep the outfit going because that really is the kind of supreme quality quantity in a ranch is the kind of composite um, that, that keeps people on the land and they like that and they believe in that. And if there's any doubt about that, one of the things that's really interesting is the ways in which uh, conservation easements, for example, have become a, a late 20th century and certainly 21st century phenomenon that people will, that ranchers will use to allow them to be able to afford to stay on their properties. And, uh, or if they're passing something down to their children, to keep a ranch as a ranch rather than as some place that is uh, going to go to um, some wealthy Hollywood grandee who wants to keep her or his um, grip on the land and they've made enough money that they can go out and buy a $13 million ranch outside of Cody, Wyoming or um, someplace along those lines. It's one of the ways in which people adapt to these things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you, when you ask ranchers why they're doing what they're doing, it's not because it's especially economically profitable, <laughs> not that it's necessarily unprofitable over the long term if you do it well, but it certainly is not. Uh, you know, the, the numbers that I've seen from economists are that the rate of return on investment on most, uh, most ranches is two, three, four percent, which means that if they could, if they were to liquidate all of those, uh, you know, tangible assets and put on the stock market, they would have done better than if they had just continued ranching. But there's something intangible that's valuable. They value the culture and and not just, you know, the not just the work, not just whether it makes money or not. They see it as a way of life with innate value. And, you know, long ago I wrote a I wrote uh, a book review, I think it was, uh, of a nice piece that was done by Nice, nice book that was done by um, Gary Nabhan and Stephen Trimble. And one of the things that I singled out about that book, uh, it's, it's actually, um, oh, what's the title of the book? It's um, why, why Childhood Matters or something along those lines. Um, and the interesting thing about that is that they really emphasized how important it is for people, if they can, to live in relatively close proximity to domesticated animals. And the argument goes, one of the most amazing things that humans have done over the last 20,000 years, maybe 40,000 years, it depends, the archaeological evidence goes back and forth, is to adopt animals into our lives. And initially, it was a dog, um, and a lot of archaeologists and uh, ethnographers now think that the second animal that was domesticated was the goat. And I raised uh, Lynn and I raised two daughters uh, who, when they were ten and eight, I guess, we came back from a sabbatical, and they wanted a goat each. And so, for fifteen years, 
we had goats living alongside our house uh, in a mm-hmm. pen at night, but they would go out on long lines and graze the hillside and do a little bit of uh, grass and shrub eradication. And, you know, those the girls loved those goats. And I think it's safe to say we did too. They were quite wonderful and they were great company. And we'd had a dog and a cat before that. But domesticated animals are an amazing companion to human society. And keeping them around us makes us, I believe, better and more interesting people. Now, granted, maybe PETA wouldn't agree with me or the Center for Biological Diversity, but when I look at people who have grown up with cows or pigs or sheep, they have an appreciation for life and for uh, the land and for stewardship that is not something that's that common uh, for people who grow up in urban environments. And it's one of the reasons why I think that 4-H is oftentimes a kind of heroic entity because uh, 4-H and uh, people who are working in cooperative extension have done an amazing job of helping even city people to keep animals. And more and more towns, more and more cities, including the little one that we live in, are stepping in and trying to create various sorts of provisions for people to be able to keep chicken, chickens, for example, or um, I, not many have backyard pigs or, or goats or something along those lines. It, it changes us and I think makes us better people, better humans, better community members. Mm-hmm. I read somebody recently who was saying that humans are not primarily thinking things, as Descartes thought. We're primarily lovers. We're always <clears throat> moving toward some telos, some <laughs> you know, some our own version of the good life. Which reminds me of a quote by C.S. Lewis. Actually, he says, "As long as we're thinking of natural values, we must say that the sun looks down on nothing half so good as a household laughing together over a meal." or two friends talking over a pint of beer, or a man alone reading a book that interests him, and that all economies, politics, laws, armies, and institutions, save insofar as they prolong and multiply such scenes, are a mere plowing the sand and sowing the ocean, a meaningless vanity and vexation of the spirit. Collective activities are, of course, necessary, but this is the end to which they are necessary. Beautiful, beautiful and totally apt quotation, I have to say. That's absolutely on the money. Um, let me do um, one, more, um, one more quotation reading, if I may. This is actually from absolutely. a book I wrote called Let the Cowboy Ride, Cattle Ranching in the American West. Um, out of print now from Johns Hopkins University Press, but um, still available online and um, you can you can track it down with a little bit of work in Alibris or uh, a book, something like that. I think Amazon works as well sometimes. And this is sort of toward the end of the book. Um, and so here, here we go. Um, I've offered an essay on how Western land, livelihood, and ideology are blended, roughly in constant compromise in ranching. A living economy, ranching is also a way of life. 
more than than an abstract saunter into historical geography, this essay into ranch life might also, I hope, pose a series of questions about community sustenance, about policymaking and applied geography, joining new institutional economics with contingent valuation, and look closely at the relationship of geography to environment and to history. The data to address these questions are there. How do we grapple with essential questions about people and their wants and how they act to fulfill basic needs? Henry Glassie, in a study of a substantially different area, sums up with a credo that many of us, with varying success, pursue. This is from Glassie. Our study must push beyond things to meaning and grope through meaning to values. We study others so their humanity will bring our own into awareness so the future will be better off than the past. And I think, Tip, what you just said, what you just read, is absolutely on point. The C.S. Lewis quotation, you know, our study must push beyond things to meaning and grope through meanings to values. That is where practice does meet philosophy. And I think that's one of the really crucial things that range resource managers, that geographers, cultural, historical, urban, whatever, um, can bring to the table and make work. I think that's an excellent conclusion. And Paul, I really thank you for your time. This has been a great conversation. Thank you so much, Tip. A pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture.